Um, good morning. Uh, it is uh, strange, but also sweet. I said last week um, that it's very strange to preach to people in masks, but it is great to preach to people. Uh, so it's good to see half your faces. Uh, and um, I will uh, try very hard. Uh, it's hard for me here to not just focus on the people in the room, but I've been told that there's other people watching. Hi, virtual people. Uh, Midtown Home Church, Midtown 12 South, the, all of Midtown uh, together, we have a, a, a little over 40 home churches gathering um, in the city and then all kinds of people kind of watching online. And so they are here with us um, and they, they will see this. So you guys, I've been told, are kind of like the live studio audience. Um, and so the laugh track that you need to laugh for, uh, watch no, I'm kidding. Um, you all turned. You all turned. I used that joke last week and it didn't work. I thought I'd try it again, but a little better. Uh, so we are uh, in the middle of, or kind of two weeks into, a new series called The Priesthood of the Believer. Why are we doing a series called The Priesthood of the Believer? Well, in a season that it is, it is um, impossible not to feel on some level scattered in a season where the church uh, is, is unable to gather the way that we historically have, in a season where we're all wondering, uh, what are we supposed to be doing? There, there's fragmentations, and we, we want to be with people, and we want to corporately sing, and we want to not be alone and not be lonely. And so how do we take all that's going on and understand what are we supposed to be doing? Well, our hope is in this series, this five-week series, this is week two of, that we would begin to understand this call that the Lord has for his people and has always had for his people from beginning to end, that regardless of what's going on in the world, maybe even because of what's going on in the world, I want my people to understand what I've called them to. And so that it doesn't really matter what the circumstances are going around you, that we would understand this is why the Lord has called for himself a people and so that terminology, priesthood of the believer, we didn't come up with that. That is um, buried in Scripture from Old Testament to New. In the Old Testament, on Mount Sinai in Exodus, Moses declares to the people that it's God's intention for them, for all of God's people, that they would be a kingdom of priests. And then later on in the New Testament, Peter writes his letter to the church in, 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 in the New Testament, and he says to them that God has declared for you, he has made for you, he has made it possible for you to be a royal priesthood. So kingdom of priests and royal priesthood, this biblical understanding, it is God's intention that his people would be priests to the world. And I know that term may have some baggage for you, that term maybe is, sounds spiritual or sounds uh, religious. And it is, but I also want to back up from the, the baggage we may have with it or the misunderstanding we may have with that terminology of being a priest to the world and really see the beauty of what that means for us as God's people. And so kind of a working definition that we have, a helpful definition that we're, we're going to use over the next several weeks that certainly isn't exhaustive but helps us begin to build an understanding and color a canvas of what does it mean to, that we are a, a kingdom of priests. Is it a priest is someone who has access to God's special presence and then invites others into that presence. A priest is someone who has access to God's special presence and then invites others into that presence. So we started that with that definition last week and then we looked at that story of God having a people that have special access to him and then inviting other people, inviting the world into that presence, that actually, that story actually started in the garden. 
The Garden of Eden was actually the very first temple, the Garden of Delight, it's known as, where Adam and Eve were the first priests in the first temple, and they were called to be priests to the world, to, to be fruitful and multiply and take dominion and bring everybody into this joy-spreading project. You have special access to God's presence, Adam and Eve. Now be fruitful and multiply and take dominion, and let's fill this thing up. The first priests in the first temple, Adam and Eve, failed. And because of their failure, they were cast out from the garden. And then, not only that, all who would come from Adam and Eve would be cast out from God's presence. But the story wasn't over, and us who have come from Adam and Eve, although we were cast out, we have been brought back in by the second Adam, Jesus, the better gardener, the better priest than Adam. And now he has restored us to God's special presence that we might be priests to the world. And so, that's, that's kind of week one, mini overview. Now we're continuing to pull that thread we're looking at what does it mean that God has called his people to be priests of the world. But if we went back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3, the story of Adam and Eve and their failure and being cast out, and we fast-forwarded the story of Adam and Eve in the world, just a few chapters, we would begin to experience the biblical stories of the flood. And everything's a mess, and it's, and it's a wreck, and it's not getting any better. And we've got Cain and Abel a few chapters before that. Cain's murdering his brother. And then we've got a Tower of Babel where people are trying to make a name for themselves, and they build this tower of the sky, and it's not working. And all of this mess that started in the garden is just getting worse. It's spiraling out of control. And so for 10 chapters, 11 chapters, Genesis 1 through 11, you get to the end of Genesis 11, and you go, this is a train wreck, Nothing good is happening. There's not any blessing going on. There's not any healing going on. What happened in the garden is only amplifying, and this is a giant train wreck. Nothing is working. And so the reader, if you're reading through Genesis 1 through 11, would begin to ask this question, how could anyone make this right? How could anyone ever bring people back into God's presence? How could anyone restore what was lost in Eden? And so Genesis 12 begins in the story of the world, right? We've had a flood and a tower of Babel and murders and hatred and jealousy. It's all a mess. And then Genesis chapter 12, this, the, 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 the narrator, the writer, zooms in on one person. We've been talking about a mess on a global scale, Genesis 1 through 11. And then in Genesis 12, the story gets focused. And the Lord zooms in on one man and he sets his eye on one man and his wife and their family and he says to them, this is what the Lord comes and says, we're going to read it in just a second, I'm going to make all of this right through this family. I'm going to heal all of this through this family. The story of death and the story of sorrow and the story of being cast out and the story of shame that began in the garden, I'm going to make all this right through this family. So, read with me or turn with me, Genesis chapter 12. This is, this is what is known as the call of Abram, who is Abraham. The call of Abram, Genesis 1, sorry, Genesis 12, 1 through 4. And remember the backdrop, being cast out from the garden and the world being a mess, and then we get to Genesis 12. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. And I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. It's the word of the Lord. 
Okay, so biblically, this is known as the call of Abram, and if you grew up in church, you've probably heard about this. Father Abraham had many sons. I am one of them. So are you. And so there, there's, this, there's this familiarity, if you know about biblical things, with Abraham, but I, I, we have to pause for a minute because um, billions of people in this world, and that is not an exaggeration, billions of people in this world, um, the three largest religions in the world, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, would all claim Abraham as their patriarch, would all claim Abraham as their father. So on some just simply secular level, if you want to understand world history, if you want to understand world civilizations, you need to understand this man. And this is where his story begins. This is no small thing that just happened. And according to the Bible, the Christian understanding of this man, what was just read, is that what just happened in Genesis 12, the opening lines, is that this is God's first step in his redemptive plan for the world. Do not miss this. What God just did for Abraham, called him, and gave him some promises that we'll talk about. This is how God is going to restore what was lost in Eden. He's saying, I'm going to use this man, I'm going to use this man's family, I'm going to use this man's lineage, and I'm going to heal all of this through this person. All of humanity's sin and shame, all of the longing to be brought back into God's presence begins right here with Abraham. So, if that's the setup, how's he going to do it? Tell us, preacher man, what's the big plan? It's all a mess since Eden. What are we going to do? Well, it's not entirely clear yet. (laughs) Because what's interesting about this is that if you're looking for a meticulous plan, it's not here. This is the start of the plan, but it's really fuzzy if you want to know, okay, God, you want to fix the mess? You want to restore what was lost in Eden? You want to make all this right again? And then there's not a whole lot of clarity here. All there is is just a bunch of promises from God to Abraham and his family. He tells Abraham, if you'll trust me, if you'll follow me, I'm going to give you blessings that you could not fathom right now. I know you don't have any children. I know you're 75 years old and your wife is barren and y'all have been trying to have children and you can't have children. I know you don't have a homeland because you're a nomad. I know you're an idol worshiper because you're from the land of Ur, Ur of the Chaldeans, and they worship the moon there. So you're a moon-worshiping, lonely nomad who's never met me. This is God speaking. Hi, Abraham. Nice to meet you. I'm the one who made all this, and I've got a plan for you. And I'm going to so shower you with my abundance, Abraham. I'm going to so bless you. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you a nation. I'm going to give you descendants. And in that plan, Abraham, something will happen from this family line way down the road that's going to be so cosmically great. Something's going to happen from this family that I'm not even going to be able to lay it out for you right now, but something's going to happen that's going to be so grand that the entire world, Abraham, is going to bless your family. The world is going to be so blessed by your family that you don't even have right now. But it's going to be so blessed by your family that it's going to cause the world to turn around and bless your family. I'm going to bless and heal the whole world through you, Abraham. No details given, no plan given, no scope and sequence, no objectives, no goals, just promises. And then, to complicate the situation a little bit more, All these promises come to Abraham in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. And then the first commandment that God gives to Abraham, before he even gives promises, he says this really scary word, go. Some translations say leave. 
And not only just leave, he's this nomad, and, he, and he's landed in this area with his father, which was a big deal. But he doesn't just tell him to leave his father. He says, leave your country, your people, and your father. Leave them, Abraham, and trust me. The Hebrew tradition, ancient Near East tradition, uh, would, would understand those three things, your people, your country, and your father. Leave them. They would understand that massively different. We almost are drawn to that idea, like I'm growing up, I'm tired of my home, I hate my dad, I want to get out of this, I want new people. Like we, we don't really understand the idea, the, the, the gravity of what Abraham was just commanded to do. He was essentially just commanded to leave everything he loved and all of his future security. On some levels, Abraham was called to leave his entire identity, to trust this God who he's never met. Abraham is called to give up all that he holds dear for a bunch of promises from an unknown God. And then, to make matters even more complicated, we're told in the book of Hebrews in the Hall of Faith, if you read the Hall of Faith, Abraham's in there a bunch. Abraham, we're told, Genesis doesn't quite lay it out this explicitly. You can imply it, but Hebrews makes it very clear when it's retelling the story of Abraham that God told Abraham to leave his father and his country and his people. And Hebrews says, and Abraham had no idea where he was going. <laughs> Meaning Abraham was very confused. But he goes. He trusts this unknown deity. And he's told that as he goes, he will be blessed and his name will be great, and the Lord will protect him and keep him and bless those who bless him and curse those who curse him. And that somehow through this mysterious set of promises from this unknown God to, to trust him, to leave, leave and, and come with me and follow me, that somehow all the nations and all the families and all the people of the earth will be blessed through this family, Abraham. Now remember, this is why this is such a cosmically insane promise. They're going to be blessed. I'm going to bless you, Abraham, and your family to such a degree that the whole world's going to turn around and bless you. Something's going to happen in your family, Abraham, that's going to make all this right. And that's against the backdrop of everything being not so right. That's against the backdrop of the world being a mess. And God, God has already flooded the earth and started over, so to speak, with Noah and his family, and it hadn't gotten any better. Every intention of man's heart was only evil all the time, Genesis tells us. It's bad. It's really, really bad. But God comes in to Abraham and says, I'm going to make all this right through this family. I'm going to bless you. But in verse 2 and 3 of these promises to Abraham in this, this redemption plan that's not very clear, in verse 2 and 3, there's this, there's this paradigm-shifting statement. There's this, there's this way, there's this framework that, that God gives to Abraham uh, that makes this call of Abraham uniquely divine. Because he says something to Abraham about how he's going to bless him and what's going to happen, but he gives him a way to understand how this needs to go down. There's something in here that gives the framework for this conversation that changes the entire trajectory of the entire conversation. Abraham is told essentially twice in those three verses, the goal of why he's being blessed. Abraham is told why the Lord is going to bless him. Let me read for you again verse 2. He says, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, so that, Abraham, so that you will be a blessing. 
I'm going to bless you, Abraham, in all these extravagant ways. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you descendants. And a story is going to come from your line that's going to be so insanely amazing that it's going to bless the whole world. But, but, I'm blessing you so that you will be a blessing to others. All that I'm promising you, Abraham, all that I'm promising to bless you with is not just for you. It's for the world. It's to restore what was lost in Eden for the sake of all of humanity. Am I going to shower you with affection, Abraham? Am I going to shower you with abundance beyond your wildest dreams? Yes. Am I going to protect you and your family? Yes. Am I going to provide for your family? Yes. Are all of these promises and blessings meant for only your family? No. And it's in this way, this little window, this paradigm of the blessing and the promises from God that we begin to see this is how Abraham is called to be a priest to the world. He has this special access, this special privilege. And Abraham, this special privilege is meant for the sake of the world. It's not only meant for you. And please do not miss this. This is so uniquely biblical. In the second half of this equation, I'm blessing you so that you will go be a blessing is critical for us to understand Being a blessing, taking the blessing you have received and sharing it is the work of a priest. It's it's not that complicated, but it is extremely difficult. This is the call of all who would come into Abraham's family or come from Abraham's family and be joined to Abraham's faith, which is us. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But this is the standard practice for the Christian. You have been blessed to be a blessing Christian, you are called to leverage what you have been given and use it and spend it and dream it for the sake of others. And let me pause real quick. Please don't miss this. This is not only talking about material blessings. It's certainly talking about material blessings. But it's also talking deeply about the spiritual blessings you've been given. This, this is the Christian paradigm. This is the model. The model that starts with Abraham, you are blessed in order to be a blessing, is still true for the church. It's what makes us priests to the world. In Philippians chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2 in the New Testament starts this way. Paul says to them, if any of you has any encouragement from Christ, if any of you has ever tasted his love, if you know anything about being united to Jesus, give it away. 2 Corinthians 1, Paul says, Praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has comforted us. He's been immeasurably comforting to us so that we can go be a comfort to those who are hurting. Jesus, in Luke chapter 12, makes it very clear. To whom much has been given, much will be required. Because you're not just given, you're not just blessed by Jesus spiritually and or materially. Everything you have been given from Jesus in every realm is not meant just for you. So do you have? Do you have? Are you someone that belongs in the haves, not the have-nots? And if you're a Christian, the answer is astronomically yes. Because you've been given immeasurably more than you can even ask or think in Jesus. So do you have? Who's that for? The Lord giving to you how he's given to you, who's that for? 
In fact, the, the, the Christian, the biblical understanding of this is so counterintuitive, and we see the model beginning here with Abraham, but it's so counterintuitive that the Bible would actually challenge us this way, that all that you've been given, spiritually and or materially, everything you have, it's not just for you, it is for you, it's not just for you, that everything you have, it actually, if you don't understand this paradigm that you've been blessed in order to bless, if you don't understand that, what you have will actually turn into poison for you. You actually will be ruined by what you have if you don't understand that you have been given in order to give, that you have been blessed in order to bless. The Bible would say you won't actually be able to even enjoy the things you've been given if you don't learn how to leverage what you've been given for the sake of other people. That if you just hold on to it, it will actually destroy you because you will demand that what you've been given, spiritual or material, it will, you will demand that it fully satisfy you and, and it be only for you and you extrapolate all the joy possible out of that and the Lord would say, it's going to kill you because it wasn't meant just for you. It won't actually expound and, and, and explode your life with joy until you understand you have been blessed to be a blessing. And being a blessing to the world, taking the blessing that we have received and sharing it is the work of a priest. And we see the birth of that paradigm here with Abraham. But, but, we need to pause here for just a minute because we need to, at least on some levels, define this, this little power-packed word, blessing, or to be blessed. To bless someone is to want and to work for their ultimate good. To bless someone is to want and to work for their ultimate good. And I think there's this cultural understanding of, of that word, of that idea, and it's far, it's far different from the biblical understanding of what it means to be blessed, as displayed by Bruno Mars in 24 Karat Magic. We're going to play that whole song right now. I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> you believed me. At home, feel free to pause and play 24 Karat Magic by Bruno Mars. He'd appreciate your streams. But... Uh, Bruno, his good friend, Bruno is talking about, I mean, just a life of excess and access and everything being maxed out. And then he says this line, got to blame it on Jesus, hashtag blessed. And we hear it, and we go, yeah, it's kind of funny, it's Bruno being funny, and he's talking about this life of just women and money and gold and cars and life with, with no problems and life going the way that he wants it to go, hashtag blessed. And if you listen for it, the idea of being blessed is everywhere. It's in interviews, it's slang on Instagram. I love it when an Instagram post of someone in like the, <laughs> the islands of Hawaii saying, just so blessed to be on this influencer trip. You know, I just, like my life, don't you want my life? And really what they want is for you to know they're more blessed than you. Like there's no humility <laughs> in the cultural understanding of being blessed. We're all working really hard to be that blessed. And so this, this cultural pressure, this cultural definition comes in of, I want to be blessed, and in incongruence with that idea of being blessed is that we all have a working definition of what being blessed for our life would look like. And here's where it gets really tricky. You walk around with that definition without even realizing it. And that definition is loaded with what my life should look like, how my life should go, and most importantly, how my life should feel. We've taken this idea of being blessed 
Like if God has truly blessed me and being blessed is someone wanting for me my ultimate good and working for me for my ultimate good, we have a definition of what ultimate good is. And so if God's saying he's blessing me, then why aren't you getting on my agenda? Like I have a definition of blessed and it, and it doesn't really look like, like the present. And so God, if you're blessing me, it sure would be great if you would hurry up and get on that. We have this idea of what being blessed would mean for our life. And almost none of us, I'm saving room for some saint in the room who's not all of us, but almost all of us, ever have a definition of being blessed that ever includes any pain or any confusion or any discomfort or any neediness. Our definition of being blessed is void of all of those things. If I'm being blessed, there should be no pain. There should be no confusion. There should be no discomfort. There should be no discontentment. There should be no financial stress. There should be no relational strife. If I'm truly being blessed, I can tell you what that should look like. But go back with me into Abraham's story for a minute. Just imagine yourself into that story. He's he's a nomad. He's in the middle, literally, of friggin' nowhere. And and this unknown deity comes to him and says, I'm going to bless you. I've already started blessing you. I'm blessing you to be a blessing. Now go there. Abraham goes. He leaves. And then remember that he's called to leave all the things that were most dear to him, like his family, his father and his brothers, his mom. He's called to leave his country and his people, all the things that were secure to him. And, and, remember Hebrews, he had no idea where he was going. How do you think Abraham was reading the circumstances. Like if Abraham took our, our uh, uh, lens and said, well, being blessed means that my life looks and feels and goes a certain way, how do you think he was reading his circumstances after the promise from God that I'm going to bless you and you're not even going to be able to believe it? And then he walks into that reality. In fact, in just a few verses, a famine hits the land where Abraham is, and he's got to flee this promised land that God promises to give him and go to Egypt. We're going to talk about that in a minute too, how Egypt goes. He's got a famine, no clue what he's doing, and he's left all of his security. And the Lord says, I'm blessing you. What if Abraham had stuck to the commitment that in order to be blessed, you could never have any doubt, never have any confusion, never be angry or sad, or any of those things. How long do you think he would have stayed gone from his family? So I don't know the details of your life, but is it possible that in the Lord's providence of promising to bless you, he has ordained things in your life right now that are blessing you? And they are for your ultimate good, And they are part of how the Lord is healing you and freeing you and restoring you. And it's part of how the Lord is healing and restoring the world. But the circumstances of your life may never suggest or feel like the Lord is blessing you. Is is that possible? Certainly it was possible for Abraham. That Abraham was blessed in order to be a blessing. And yet for many, 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 many years almost nothing about his life would suggest to him that he was being blessed. But he goes. He leaves. He walks by faith with no compass or clarity into these promises from this God who he's just met. 
And this, this is really subtle, but it's very important. And we need to, this, this is like thin line talk here. Because it is really easy for us to get off on either um, wrong ditch on this. I, I, we have to toe this line very carefully. But it's very important. And the first thing that's going to keep us on this line in this Abraham leaves, Abraham goes, Abraham obeys, is that please understand None of the promises, none of the promises that were made to Abraham were dependent on him leaving or going or obeying. The promises of God to Abraham, and we'll see this in a few minutes, were going to come to fruition regardless of how Abraham behaved or believed. The promises of God are initiated by God and dependent on God. There is no hint in the call of Abram in Genesis 12. There is no hint of having anything to do, of Abraham and his obedience have anything to do with whether or not the promises come true. The promises are going to happen because God's promises are always based on God's character. And in order for the promises to not come true, God would have to be a liar and God doesn't change. God promised it, they are happening. God's promises are not fickle, they are final. In the book of Jeremiah, God is telling his people, he's reminding his people, and he's giving them promises, he's reminding them of his previous promises, and he says to them, the day, the day that the sun stops rising and shining in the, in the sky, and the day that the sun and the moon and the stars stop shining in the evening, will be the day that I break my promises to you, Israel. Oh, and by the way, I control the sun and the moon and the stars too. I'm the one that causes this, the sun to rise by day and the moon by night, and the day that starts happening is the day I break my promises to you. You're safe. The promises of God, the goodness of God, the blessings of God are one-way trains. They are going to happen, and they do not depend on the recipient of the promise doing anything. But, but, experiencing the weight and the fullness of those promises depends on us leaving or going. Doesn't mean they're not going to happen, but us experiencing the fruit and the joy of those promises does depend on me going. In order for me to experience the promises that God has made to me, I have to go. I have to leave like Abraham. The promises are not dependent on me, but I may never know the fullness of the promise if I don't go and leave like Abraham. Practically speaking, and th this gets into the story of Abraham for uh, 25, 30 years later, he ends up in this promised land that God has promised to him and his descendants, and he buys this little, he buries his wife in the promised land, and you only bury people on your own property. So he buys this little graveside just to bury his wife in because he so believes this is going to be our land. He has this little like stretch of land that God says all this is going to be yours one day. Abraham would have never, ever, ever gotten to experience the joy of burying his wife on his promised land if he had stayed with his family in the very beginning. But if Abraham had stayed with his family, guess where Abraham's descendants would have been um, living and breathing in the promised land. But Abraham wouldn't have gotten to experience the joy had he not gone. Please hear me, please hear me and see this clearly. The command of God for Abraham to go and to leave was not a manipulative test to see, well, Abraham, name it and claim it, bro. If you'll go, you'll get blessed. 
The command of God for Abraham to go is, was an invitation. Abraham, I want to I lavish all this blessing on you, and I so want you to experience that. you got to go. you got to go. It was the invitation for Abraham to experience the delight of his promise-making and promise-keeping God. So let me ask you this question. What security may the Lord be calling you to leave? What thing in your life that you love and that you hold dear and that makes you feel so secure may the Lord be asking you to leave? Now let me say this. The first thing you just thought of, whatever just popped into your mind, is probably not the thing. Because we first answer most questions with fear and shame. So however you first answer that, what's the Lord asking me to leave? However, whatever came to your mind, not the right answer. Not what God's calling you to leave. Which may give some of you some relief. Here's how you'll know what the Lord's calling you to leave. Ask him. You'll know the answer when you slow down long enough to ask the Lord or ask a mentor or ask your small group leader. Ask them the question and then wait for the Lord to answer you. And the answer to that question will probably be more along these lines. What identity is the Lord calling you to set down and walk away from? What idol of false comfort is he calling you to leave and step into his promises? Or maybe the most painful one and how the Lord semi-answered it for me this week. What are the self-saving attempts that he's calling you to stop doing and set down and leave and trust that he will be your rescuer? And here's the comfort of asking that very scary question. Lord, what would you have me leave? What would you have me go from? What would you have me lay down and leave? Here's the comfort. Following the Lord, obeying the Lord like Abraham does here on that answer will only always liberate you and only cause you to fall deeper into the promises of your promise-making and promise-keeping God. It will only be for your ultimate good. He will only answer that question in something that's ultimately good for you. So Abraham goes. He leaves. And the plan of saving and restoring the world begins. And then literally in the next section, I mean like less than 10, less than 10 verses later, it's almost comical that the author of Genesis like does it this, this quickly. There's a famine that hits in this land where Abraham is, and he's got to go to Egypt to get uh, some food so he doesn't die. And on their way down to Egypt, Abraham realizes, my wife is beautiful. Newsflash. He goes, my wife is beautiful. When we go into Pharaoh's palace, Pharaoh's going to think she's beautiful. Pharaoh's going to want to sleep with her. If he wants to sleep with her, he's probably going to kill her husband. I'm her husband. Pharaoh's going to want to kill me. So he devises this plan. And he goes, hey, babe, Sarah, can I call you Sarai now because your name hasn't been changed? Sarai, uh, hey, got a little plan for when we get to Pharaoh's courts. How about we lie to Pharaoh and let's tell him that you're my sister. Love you, sweetie. Let's tell him you're my sister and then he can go sleep with you. You can go spend a few nights with him, but he won't kill me. You good with that? <laughs> um, okay, so when the Lord decided, uh, I'm going to bless the world through this man, I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing, Abraham fails at test one of being a blessing. Because how blessed do you think Sarah felt by Abraham? 
how loved and protected and kept and held and blessed. How much do you think Sarah felt, Abraham really wants my ultimate good here. He's only thinking about me here. I can't wait to go sleep in Pharaoh's chamber. It's almost like the author of Genesis is saying, I'm taking this man, I'm taking this family, I'm gonna bless him so that he can be a blessing. But this man is incredibly selfish and incredibly afraid and incredibly deceitful. That surely this is not the way that the Lord who's restoring the world intended that his people would be a blessing. The author of Genesis is saying, yes, Abraham is going to be blessed by God, but Abraham is not the one that is going to be blessing the whole world. In fact, the promises given to Abraham here in regards to him being a blessing to the world are so grand and so cosmic. Like, it's, it's really difficult to try to explain this nomadic dude in the ancient Near East being told, your family's gonna bless the whole world and you're gonna have so many people come from you, you're gonna, you're gonna bless the entire world on such a level, on such a cosmic scale, that the whole world is gonna then turn and bless your family. Like, the, the astronomical gap from how this man and how finite this man is should be communicating to the reader, there's gotta be someone better than Abraham. It's surely this cosmic level restoration, this blessing of the whole world, cannot happen through this man. And so in Galatians chapter 3 in the New Testament, go read Galatians chapter 3. After, read the story of Abraham if you want a like, quiet time assignment this week. Read the story of Abraham, Genesis 12 through 25, 26-ish, and then go read Galatians 3 in light of it because Paul uses Abraham to help explain the gospel in, in, in Galatians chapter 3 big time and in Romans chapter 4. But go to Galatians 3. We're told in Galatians chapter 3 that on some level, Abraham knew that the blessing that would come to him and then through him would bless the world, but that he would not be the one that would be the actual ultimate blessing. Because Galatians 3 tells us that when God promised to bless the world through one of Abraham's offspring, when God promised to, to bless the world through Abraham's offspring, that the Hebrew, Galatians 3 says this, the Hebrew in Genesis is talking about a singular offspring. It's not like, hey, Abraham, your whole family's gonna be so great and there's gonna be millions of you guys and all millions of you guys, y'all are gonna be the blessing. No, Abraham, the blessing that I'm gonna send is through one offspring, through one person. One of your descendants one day will be the cosmic blesser. So who could come to be such a blessing? Who could be this singular offspring that would cause all the people of the world, every tongue, tribe, and nation, to be so blessed by this one offspring that they would then turn and bless the entire family of Abraham. Who could come from Abraham's line and perform such a task? If you flip to the New Testament, the very first page of the New Testament, the very first words of the New Testament start this way. Book of Matthew, chapter one. And these are the genealogies of Jesus, the son of Abraham. Jesus is the singular offspring of Abraham. Jesus fulfilled and embodied all the blessings that Abraham was to give to the world. In fact, Jesus is the truer and better and ultimate Abraham. Jesus is the one who left his father, who left everything he held dear, who left what was secure, who left it in order to obey his father's command to go and be a blessing. 
Jesus left not only to only go and be a blessing, Jesus left to go and be cursed. That's what Galatians 3 says. It says that Christ has actually become a curse for us in order to achieve for us all the blessings of being welcomed into Abraham's line and Abraham's family. That if you're a Christian, you're in Abraham's family now. And part of the call of Abraham's family is to be blessed in order to be a blessing to the world. And how you're blessed in Abraham's family is you are welcomed in by the Jesus who became a curse for you. Jesus, the ultimately blessed one, was the ultimate example of someone who leveraged all of their blessings for the ultimate good of someone else. Jesus was cursed and crushed Jesus was cursed for being a lawbreaker. Jesus was cursed for being a God rejecter. Jesus was cursed for all the sins of all of his people, and he bore that curse and all the things that they deserve, and he bore the curse that we deserved in order to give us the blessings that he deserves. And so if you're in Christ, ultimate good has come to you. You have been blessed, and ultimate good awaits you. You have a new promised land. You have been blessed by your God. And so your ultimate good, your blessing is so secure that you don't have to be afraid of anything. You don't have to be afraid of over-loving or overspending or over-blessing other people in your world. You have a provider, you have a shepherd, you have a king, you have a father who says the day the sun stops shining will be the day that he breaks his promises to you and he rules the sun. And why does God bless his children? What's the goal of him being good to his children? That we would be a blessing. That we would take the mercy and the blessing that we have found and we would show it and display it for the world to see. And this does not have to be in sexy ways or in Instagrammable ways. This is like loving your spouse or blessing your roommates. This is like healing and honoring your parents. In fact, Jesus goes so far in the Gospels that he says to members of his kingdom who have been blessed by him, you are so secure in my blessing, everything you long for is yours in me, that you can actually now bless those who curse you. Can you imagine being so free and so loved and so liberated and so securely blessed that you would seek the ultimate good, work for the ultimate good of people that hate you? It's the call of God's people. Midtown, you have been blessed to be a blessing. And in order to experience the full blessing of Jesus, you will have to leave something continually. I don't know what he's calling you to leave, but no matter how you answer that, remember, you're walking into the promises of the one who became a curse for you. Let's pray. Jesus, we have been blessed by you. You are our curse-bearing, promised one. May we even begin today to use our imaginations to understand how we've been blessed and then begin to understand how to leverage that blessing for the sake of those around us, we pray. We ask all this in your precious name, Jesus. Amen.